0: Welcome to the Minnesotan Pod. Today we welcome basketball legend Trent Tucker into our studio to talk about his career and his latest love affair with the game of hockey. Trent is an alum of the University of Minnesota where he won a Big Ten championship with the Gophers in 1982. He was chosen sixth overall by the New York Knicks that same year and went on to play 11 seasons in the NBA. Capping off his career, he won an NBA title in 1993. After basketball, Trent has worn many hats, including raising money for inner-city middle school kids headed to college, being the athletic director at the Minneapolis Public Schools, and broadcasting basketball and a weekly radio show on KFAN. Good morning, Mr. Tucker. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. And you?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, we're in the full thrushes of uh, summer hockey. I think your son... Uh, William Jesse will be playing in the Bantam Elite playoffs tonight so you're definitely in the middle of it too aren't you I no
1: doubt about it it's been a, a full summer of hockey but a lot of fun though and the kids are enjoying it The great thing about you know team sports is that you get to meet kids from all different places and you form friendships and relationships. And that's the beauty of Team Sports. And and both of my boys are having a very good time of
0: doing that. Uh, They are good hockey players, but they're also really good people around the rink. Everybody seems to know who they are. They make friends. I, I follow them on social media. They're making friends everywhere. I'm amazed by all the different people and the connections those kids have just through Instagram. <laughs> I think that do they get that from you or they get that from your wife, Molina?
1: Well, I think they, they they may get that side from me.
0: Yeah, but
1: you know they're very personable. You know their grandfather is very personable. He's a guy that likes to talk, and so
0: this is your dad or uh, Melina's, Melina's dad. dad yeah, okay.
1: and so he, he lives in Maple Grove and. When they were very, very young, like two or three years old, they were always engaged in conversations with him about worldly things. So they would ask me questions about this, about that. I said, Go ask your grandfather. He has more knowledge than I do. So, in their terms of engaging and and being in the moment and and enjoying, they enjoy being around people. So, they got some of that from him as
0: well. That's good. All right. So, before we get into those guys, we're going to do a basketball first philanthropy, middle stuff. And then at the end, we'll, we'll talk some hockey. Uh, and you're, I would love to get your uh, lens on what hockey means to you guys and your family and all the other things that come with hockey. Uh, before we do that, I want everyone to get to know who is Trent Talker. So I got to find out who you were yesterday. Um, I've obviously known who you were from uh, you came in a really highly decorated recruiting class from Jim Dutcher. I remember that there was Sid Hartman was talking about these great recruits every day. And I was probably, you know, at the time, probably 10 years old, 11 years old at the time. And I went, Oh, we're going to have a good basketball team this year. Cause we had some ups and downs in the seventies, you know, with Muscleman crew and then Kevin McHale and Michael Thompson. So we had some, we had a real good vision of what a good basketball program was, and then you guys, your class really proved what it could look like um, but before we get that, growing up Flint, Michigan, um there's been a lot of great basketball players out of Flint, Michigan, but what is it like in the city? I know uh, obviously it's been well documented it was a it was a uh, General Motors town, yes. Um, and when did the when did the, the when did it become a General Motors town, and when did it stop becoming a General Motors town? You know, it was always a GM town. Okay. And you know, a lot of um,
1: my family members at that time, uh, uncles and aunts, they moved from the South. You know, the Tucker family originated in North Carolina. Okay. And so most of them moved to to Flint, Michigan, to be a part of the GM industry. My family, my father, uh, we were the last of the Tuckers to leave North Carolina, to come to Flint. Really, but it's, it was it was a huge, huge um, it was a huge spot for people, you know, migrating to the north looking for jobs. And GM was offering, you know, great benefits, great job opportunities, and that was the place to go. It was kind uh, of a dream. It was kind of a dream for everyone. Right. I mean, you could get a job at GM and you could work there for twenty five or thirty years, pension, pension. You know, and you were going to have a full career. You know, you could make a living, a uh, mm-hmm. really good living, by being a GM employee. So at that time Flint was booming.
0: This was the '50s then, right? Like Post World War 50s,
1: II, '60s. And yeah, going into the to the early '70s, and Flint was as a town was booming because the economy was very good because you had that one major you know job place that everybody could go to.
0: And then there was all can, the other right. all the other companies that benefited from it as well, retail, yeah. other you know, people that are supplying GM, yes. all the other stuff that came with it. But right?
1: also downtown now is vibrant because people have money to spend. You know? right. So your your local stores and your grocery stores, your drug stores, your clothing stores, your sports apparel stores, all of a sudden now they can survive. Is because the economy is good. So Flint was the right place for us to move at that time. I think in 1966.
0: Okay, so you were a kid. When I was a kid, because yes, you're a '59, born in '59. Right. Tom. Um. So and there's the, there's the civil rights movements going on at that point too. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot happening. It was, it was in, a lot in your movement, world. Right.
1: But as a kid, for myself, you know, I was very fortunate as a kid to have great parents and have a mother and a father in a household. You know, they gave me great balance. They, they helped me, underst- they gave me the understanding of what the world was all about. And, but they allowed me to, to grow and make some of my own decisions, but I knew that they would be there to, ha- to have that support. And when you have that type of leadership and guidance in your household, you can make good decisions going forward. But my father was, you know, he was a GM guy, he was a stern guy, he was tough, you know, he was a man's man. You know, was having- he tall? He's about six two six. Three. Okay, and you know, having four boys, so he had to be tough. You know, and I mean, where
0: were uh, you in the family? I'm the, I'm the youngest of four. Oh, really? That's right. why. Okay, right.
1: you know, but you know, the disciplinary in our household was my mother.
0: And was she and tall?
1: Because you're five, tall. She's about five seven five eight.
0: Okay, and, so that's tall. Yeah, and especially and in the sixties. Right. And right. So,
1: if one of us got out of line. You know, my father might would say a few words here and there, but my mother was very quick to put us back in line. <laughs> was she a stay-at-home mom, or did she work too? She was a stay-at-home mom. Okay, you know, she worked early on until until I came along. I'm, right. You know, I was I'm eight years behind my youngest brother. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, so I don't know if I was expected. You know, but all of a sudden I came along, and at the time I came along, you know, she became a stay-at-home mom then
0: got it got it okay all right oh well, this is good I'm already, I'm already learning I'm already <laughs> learning all right so you move from Carolina to to Flint and f- f- for those geograph that aren't geographically uh as smart as I am because I've been to Flint's airport it, I found it a really sneaky way to get into de- getting out of Detroit was to fly flu through Flint. Yes. It's kind of like an HHH kind of uh, little airport. We can mm-hmm. fly in, fly directly from the Twin Cities. And I was like, well, this is slick. I like Twin But it's, it's 45, 50, 60 miles oh, yeah. from it's, Detroit. It it's not Detroit. It's not a suburb of Detroit no, at all.
1: It's, it's not Bloomfield Hills or Grosse Pointe That's something <laughs> of that nature. No. No, no. But it's a good town. <laughs> it's a good town. Flint was a very good town. But, you know, over the last... You know, 10 years or so, the city has taken a turn for the worst. Yeah. And when GM poured out, let's say in the mid-'80s, and decided to, to take their workforce outside of Flint, that's when the people began to suffer because now they don't have that one workforce that right. supply All everyone. the things we were just talking about. Right, and you saw people starting to, to think about, okay, what do I do now? We have to move. We have to leave. We have to find a work source because you know the jobs are drying up. And all of a sudden, when jobs begin to dry up, people have nothing to do. And then they turn to, how do we survive? All the negative things begin to come out. You know, kids are not going to school. Kids are dropping out of school. Violence began to, to increase. Crimes and drugs are on the horizon now. So it, it took a different turn when GM poured out and took their workforces other places.
0: Right, right. Um, okay, so uh, fairly steady family. I want to hear about your basketball... Uh, how you got into basketball, and did you play other sports growing up besides basketball?
1: My three older brothers, they were great athletes as well. Like you mentioned, they were in that, that civil rights movement, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. And they could have gone on if they had the same focus, but they were more interested in different things. The world was changing. It was becoming more free enough for kids to get themselves involved in different things. So they didn't have the same focus that I had by coming, coming on a little bit later. Right. And I knew that sports was something that I wanted to try to pursue. And I learned from some of their mistakes so that I could keep myself on the right track. Sounds familiar. And and but they are the ones that really got me into sports. They were they were hard on me, they were tough on me. They used to beat me up all the time. But actually I was a better baseball player than basketball player. Really? Yes. And I really enjoyed baseball and up until my junior year in high school, I was, I was approaching to be an all-state baseball player. And really? I decided my senior year to focus just on basketball. And I think still to this day, my high school baseball coach is not happy with
0: me. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked out pretty good. What, what were you, a pitcher? or you a third you first baseman. Third baseman? Yeah. How tall are you? Six-five? Six-six? Six-five.
1: Six-five playing third base.
0: I was, yeah, yeah, that is
1: tall. Yeah. You know, And I had to play a deep third base. Yeah, and so, but it was it was fun. I, I really enjoyed the game of baseball. Uh, there are days where, sometimes I think, if I had stuck with the game, you know, maybe I could have taken it to the highest level. But as you just mentioned, you know, basketball did work out for me. It did. Um, did you? Did you? Do either of your boys play baseball ever? James Patrick, my youngest, was a good, is, is a good baseball player, and he still plays. I, he doesn't anymore. I thought okay. he was going to use that as his second sport. Yeah, but he decided he wanted to play soccer, so he plays soccer now. Okay,
0: okay, all right, Um, all right. So I want to go through your recruitment, um, basketball recruitment, because it was a lot different then than it is today with all the social media things that go with it. Um, But for some reason, we knew this was a great recruiting class that you had. Did you know any of these guys that that came in to the U at the time you were getting recruited? I did
1: not know them personally because, you know, in the, in the late 70s, we didn't have the opportunities to get to meet each other. All-star games. We couldn't and... connect like the kids can connect yeah. today. But you heard of them, you know, Street & Smith All-American, McDonald's All-American, Parade All-Americans. You
0: be Pizza knew, Hut back in your day. Right,
1: you knew the names. Yeah, yeah. But I knew that I was going to be a part of the number one recruiting class in the country. You know, talking about Daryl Mitchell, who was at that time the number one player not only in the state of Florida, but the number one player in the entire country. Yeah. And you had Gary Cookie Holmes, who was Mr. Basketball in the state of Florida. Then you had Leo Roudins, who was considered at that time the greatest basketball player in the history of of Canadian basketball. Yeah. Was he from Toronto? Yes. Ish area uh, that way? Yeah. Then you had Mark Hall, you know, from Springfield, Massachusetts. Here was a guy that was averaging what thirty-eight points a game, or thirty-nine points a game as a high school player. And yeah, has won three state championships in a row. And I would have to say, at that particular time, when we came in as eighteen-year-olds, you know, he was head and shoulders better than the rest of us because Mark Hall. because he was bigger and stronger. Yeah, he was. He was. He was a terrific basketball player.
0: Yeah, he was. He was. Um, okay, so you, so you get here. Um, as this top recruiting class in the country. Tell me a little bit about Coach Dutcher in those days. And I'm sure because he was from Michigan, he had connections to your basketball coach. Or How did you get connected to the University of Minnesota, and what were you thinking when you left Flint for here <laughs> versus – I'm sure you had options to play for either of the two Michigan schools.
1: Well, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, 1978, probably 77. It was, it was the fall of 77. And I came on my recruiting trip weekend in October of fall of 77. And the University of Michigan was in town to play the University of Minnesota. And at that time, every kid in the state of Michigan who grows up in the state of Michigan is a fan of the University of Michigan football program. So it just happened, my recruiting trip weekend, the number one team in college football is playing at Memorial Stadium on my recruiting trip weekend. So I knew Rick Leach and all the guys who (laughs) who were top Flight players for the University of Michigan College. Rick Leach is from Flint as well. Who was from? Rick Leach. Oh, he was from Flint? He's from Flint as well. Wow, okay. And, um, I remember him, a great lefty quarterback. Number one team in the country comes to Minnesota. They get beat 16-nothing by the gopher. I was there. And I and I said that day, you know what? This may not be a bad place to go to school at. Really? Yeah. And it was one of those days where everybody talked about how cold it was. And Beautiful so fall it, day. It was a like seventy-five, seventy-eight degree day. I said, well, this is a whole lot better than Flint doing it doing the fall and the winter. But I but I didn't realize how much cold it was going to get it was going to get too much later. But it was a it was a great opportunity for me to kind of leave home for the first yep. time and kind of grow up and, and see if I could coexist in a in a new environment, in a new community. I was always you know, a kid that wanted to explore different things to see the world. I didn't want to just stay in my hometown and stay in my own backyard because when you deal with difficulties for the first time and you're going to have some adversity for the first time, how do you handle that as a, as a young man and how do you move forward? And how do you make a place now that you're going to for the first time work for you and how do you fit in? And I was always interested in, to get to know other people outside of my environment and you know that came from my mother and father.
0: All right. So you you get to the U and it wasn't all it wasn't a rose rosefeld garden at the time when you got to the U. You you guys kind of struggled a little bit oh, early yeah, we on. Yeah.
1: Big Ten was tough. I mean, you <laughs> you coming as a freshman, you got all these guys who are, you know, first team all-staters, all-Americans, you think it's going to be easy at the next level. You're 18 years of age, and most and at that time, most kids stayed around three or four years. Yeah, so there are so, a lot of 22-year-olds. So they're grown olds. men almost. They're 21, 22. They're much physically stronger. They're faster. They're bigger. They understand what the Big Ten is all about. I think the first time I played against Ronnie
0: Lester from Iowa. Yeah. Remember Steve Carfino? I had never seen a guy that fast in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I hated that guy.
1: And I said, well, how in the world can we play up here? And then there was Magic Johnson. Yeah. I grew up playing against Magic Johnson. Yeah. But then when I got to college and saw him as a sophomore at Michigan State, you know, he was a different basketball player than I saw two years ago. Really? He was in
0: high school. He was bigger. He's a Detroit kid. He's Lansing. Oh that's right. He was a hometown kid. Yeah, and he's you know,
1: he's six nine, he can handle the ball. He's gotten bigger, he's gotten stronger, he's faster. But also, he's more mature. He understands what the Big Ten is all about because the year before, I think they lost maybe in the they second or third round, yeah, you know, in the NCAA tournament. So now he's coming back. He's a favorite to, you know, to win the whole thing and become a number one draft pick at the highest level that you can go to. So, as you mentioned, it was a learning curve. It was, a, it was, it was a big experience to understand what Big Ten basketball was all
0: about. I, I forgot to ask what was this? What was your second choice school?
1: My three choices came down to the University of Iowa, UCLA, really? UCLA,
0: and Minnesota. And who was the coach at UCLA
1: at the time? I went out to UCLA's basketball camp when I was fifteen, and and Gene Barto at that time was That's the head right. coach at, at, at UCLA. And somehow, some way, I became the MVP of the UCLA basketball camp. He had so many great, you know, California players at that time out there, and somehow, some way, I, I was the MVP for the week. And UCLA had always been on the radar Whoa. because, as a, at, as a at kid, your age, yeah, as a kid sure. growing up, you know, you're looking at the John wooden teams. You're looking yeah. at, you know, Kareem Abdul Jabbar that time was Lou Alcindor, and you, and you looked at all the championships that they had won. And the only, only college that we knew about at that time was UCLA. Pretty much you know, UCLA, all or, or Notre Dame. That's, yeah. that's, that's all you heard about. And I said, if I can, would ever have a chance to go to school there, that'd be the first place I'm going to go to. Gene Bartow when I became a senior in high school, left for University of Alabama. Alabama, Birmingham. Birmingham. And Gary realize. Cunningham was his assistant coach, took over at that time. And I was about to take a trip out to UCLA, you know, for one of my visits. And he told me, he says, if you take the trip out here, you have to sign right away. And I said, well, I'm not prepared to do that. I want to keep my options open. You know, there are some other schools out here that I want to look at as well. And I knew that Minnesota was was right there, neck and neck, with UCLA and Iowa. Jesse Evans was an assistant coach for Jim Dutcher. Yeah. He had played for Jim Dutcher in college at Eastern Michigan. But Jesse Evans, I knew him since I was in junior high school because he was the JV coach at the high school that I ended up going to. Northwestern. Yes. So by the time I got to high school, it was my sophomore year, he was a JV coach. He had me on JV for a few days. Then the varsity coach came down and says, no, he's going to play varsity basketball this year. The very next year, Jesse Ninth Evans- grade or tenth grader or 10th grader? 10th grader. Okay. So the very next year, Jesse Evans left and became an assistant coach for Jim Dutcher. He said, I'll be back to recruit you in two years. I'm like, yeah, 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 right, right, At right. Eastern Michigan? No, right? at the University of Minnesota. Oh, he was already at Minnesota. So, so he left my high school to become to Jim Dutcher's assistant coach at the really? U. At the U. And so- I was very close to Silas McKinney. Silas wow, McKinney. That's another name. Yeah, Silas McKinney at that time was, uh, was an assistant coach at the University of Alpha Ludosan. And Silas and my mother became very close. So at the end of the day, she says, Silas, I love you a great deal, but I'm sending my kid to Jesse Evans and Jim Dutch at the University of Minnesota. So I was very, very close to going to the University of Iowa. But Minnesota weighed out at the end. And, yeah. I,
0: and I think for me... And that was good battles between those two, yeah. those years. Of Iowa and Minnesota were some great games.
1: So now as I look at the decision that I made to come here, it was the best decision I made.
0: Yeah. Wow, mm-hmm. oh, it's getting chills. Uh, all right. Uh, I went through some uh, famous uh, Flint Northwestern alums. Okay. Uh, so I see if you can add to my list. Glenn Rice. Glenn Rice. Uh, probably that would be the best ba- – be between you and him, best basketball player to come out of that school. Kelvin Torbert, maybe. Jeff Greer. Jeff Greer was Rice there, Iowa State. Andre Rising. I got him. He's coming up here. Mm-hmm. But I got another one, Clarice Shields. Do you even know who Clarice Shields is? Mm-hmm. She's a Olympic two-time Olympic gold medal boxer oh.
1: from Flint Northwestern. But that was a kid that played with Glenn Rice and Jeff Greer, and – Andre Risen, his name was Anthony Pendleton.
0: Pendleton, uh-huh.
1: okay. He spent one year at the University of Iowa, and all the people in Flint would know this, but he was actually better, better than, than all, three all of them. There's always that guy. There's yeah. always the kids at the New York. He just could not. He just could not balance out the academics and the athletics, and he ended up dropping out of school, and we never heard from him again. But you're talking about a talent. He was a real talent. For all of the great players who came out of Flint from a basketball standpoint and an athletic standpoint. I think this guy named Eric Turner, yeah, who went on to play at the University of Michigan, I think he may have been the best athlete to come really? out of Flint. You know, punt passing kick during that time. Yeah. He used to win all of the punt passing kicks nationally. He was so good as as an athlete. His father was a high school basketball coach. His sister was one of the top track stars you know, in Flint and in the state. Yeah. But you're talking about a smaller version of Magic Johnson. He was That, that. was him. He was that.
0: That was him. All right. Uh, before we get to the U of M stuff, I just want to talk about Coach Dutcher. Uh, what was he like as a as a X's and O's guy? What was he like as a mentor?
1: You know, I really enjoyed playing for, for Jim Dutcher. is because, you know, he had his rules and regulations. I'm sure he did. But he allowed us space to grow. And he said, hey, if you guys wanna become a better team, well then you have to put the work in during the off season. It's your job as a basketball player to commit yourself and to motivate yourself to get better at the things that you need to improve upon as a player so that we can become a better team. He gave us a responsibility. He put that in our hands. He said, if you guys want to win a Big Ten championship, it's going to be up to you. I'm not going to sit here every single day and make you guys go to the gym. I'm not going to have, you know, summer practices where you guys have to come to the gym. I want you to be motivated enough to get it done on your own. Right. And to take care of one another and to police one another. If you're the captain of the team, make sure that all your teammates are ready to go at 9 a.m. when you guys decide, that, hey, we're going as a self-group, we're going to get this done, and we're going to make sure that everybody's here on time to do what they're supposed to do so that we will have a chance to become a better team and come the fall. He was the perfect coach for me. He ah, was he, good to he hear. was he was the perfect coach for me. And, you know, after my plan days, he he's, he's always been someone that I could go back to and talk to. He's been a good mentor and a good friend. And we still have conversations today as well. But I really, really enjoy playing for Jim Dutcher.
0: I remember this is way back before um, ESPN got every college basketball game. He would do color mm-hmm. for, like, I think it maybe was MSC was the network. So, yeah. like, all the non-games, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he did color. And he was literally I, – I, I remember leaving – oddly enough, you and Coach Dutcher were two of my favorite color commentators mm-hmm. on basketball because it was colorful. You know, and don't take this wrong, but you guys are not the most colorful people. You're not those loud, obnoxious, you know, Charles <laughs> Barkley, say, you know, where they're just trying to get a little shock. There was no shock value, but I just felt like you guys were really into it, excited. You could tell they, they loved the game, but you also were educating us on, on what was actually happening in the game. And it's kind of rare to find that these days. Did you ever see him do a game?
1: I did. and but <laughs> He I was great. I was very fortunate as a, as a basketball player to have. Great coaches and great mentors who helped me understand, you know, how to play the game at a high level. My high school coach, Grover Kirkland, you know, he was very, very good. He coached Glenn Rice and Jeff Greer, yeah. and Andre Risen as well. And then I got Jim Dutcher as a college coach. But then I had the great fortunes to play at the highest level, and I played for four Hall of Fame coaches.
0: I know, obviously, uh, a couple. I a couple of them: Hubie Brown, yes, Rick Pitino. Yeah.
1: I had a short stint with Greg Popovich.
0: In yeah, in San, San Antonio, that's right. And then I got Phil Jackson. Yeah, Phil Jackson, obviously. That was the so easy one.
1: So being in that room with those personalities about how the game should be played yeah. shaped my thought process. Probably for a lot of things in life. Uh, yeah, for sure. And how I look at the game today. And I think the one guy out of the four that I mentioned, that really, really, really took me into what pro basketball was all about was Hubie Brown.
0: Yeah. He's an interesting guy. He's a very interesting guy. I mean, you knew where you stood, I'm sure.
1: Very interesting guy. Right? Yeah. And he was not an easy guy to like. And once you— I mean, He was got, your first coach, yeah. wasn't he? And, and once you got past, you know, the the rough edges yeah. and the toughness of Hubie Brown, and you didn't take things personally— when he says some things that maybe most people didn't like. Yeah. He used some very colorful words that we can't use today. Yeah. <laughs> and once you got beyond that, well, then you could see, you could see, you know, the beauty of his coaching. And for a lot of young players, that's hard to get by. It's hard to move yeah. on from that. Because it's, it's very easy to take things personally.
0: Well, part of us remember now, you talked about going all all these high school all-Staters and college, you know, first uh, and All-Americans to get in the college. Now, look at look at your NBA bench. Yeah. Every one of them's an All-American. Yeah.
1: And they grow them in. Yeah. And all of a sudden, then you get this coach. And you're playing for money.
0: Yes. Right? It's and, a little bit different when and, you're not playing for money in college. And at college.
1: 18 and at 21, sometimes you don't understand that this is a business. Yeah, And your success will determine whether this guy is going to have a job next to you or not. So they're a little bit rougher and tougher. Uh, the words are a little bit harsher. The criticism is is off the charts. And for a lot of young players during that time in the early 80s when you got a coach of that nature, some of those guys just couldn't survive because they couldn't deal with the personality. But being able to deal with the personality and getting beyond the personal things and not taking it personally, and now you can say, okay, I can see the
0: beauty of his coaching. You can not now, yeah, for sure. You Absolutely. And even
1: at that time, it was hard because, you know, you come in as this All-American, All-Big Ten player. You just won a Big Ten championship. You got to the Sweet 16, you were number one draft pick. You were thinking that, well, this should be a much easier role. I've been working all my life to get to this point. And then I got him. It's like, wow, it's a whole lot tougher than I could <laughs> ever imagine. And the expectations are so much greater and people are pushing every single day, and you have to meet these, this determination that the coach is going to give you on, are you ready? You know, you got four games and five nights. Now you got to travel for the different cities, and I've never done this before. It's hard. It's hard, and you got to be able to go. You go from Kansas. At that time, the, the, the Sacramento Kings were in Kansas City. Yeah. Well, there was no, no late-night flight from Kansas City to Denver, and at that time, we didn't have charter flights, so you had to go commercial. Yeah. So you play in Kansas City and the game ends at 10.30 at night. You get back to the hotel. Most times during that time, the restaurants are closed and you can't find anything to eat on a Wednesday night. First uh, first bad call to get ready to board the bus is 4.30 a.m. What do you do? To catch a flight to to Denver. So you're hoping that you might be able to find a Denny's or a Perkins or something, something. Open it at 4.30 in the morning where you can grab a quick, <laughs> quick breakfast and, and, and more times than not, those places are closed and not open till 6. You get to the Kansas City airport, you got a flight. Nothing's at, open there either. Got a flight at 7 a.m. It's a snowstorm in Denver where you can't get out. Game's at 7 30. We don't leave Kansas City until 3 o'clock in the afternoon.
0: And you land at 5. And land at
1: 5. Don't go to the hotel, go right to the arena, you got to play. And you got to play. And coaches are not. Now, they're not feeling sorry for you. They're not saying, well, you know, this could be a bad night for us. No, this is your nope. job. And if you don't, if just you don't like, cover your assignments, you know, you're going to hit a raft. Just like a coverage.
0: concert performer, yeah. you got to perform. Got to perform. You got to show up. The show you know? goes on. <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I want to go back to the U really quick. Uh, winning the Big Ten title, first one. I, I couldn't even count how many years it had been since they'd won a Big Ten championship. Uh, what was that like, the— winning uh, that Saturday afternoon uh, Brewer just go Randy Brewer goes just goes crazy that day I think he probably had if I recall he had like 30 some points they couldn't stop him and what was that whole crew like you know you you started as freshman and and you ended as seniors I mean I'm looking at this list of guys Randy was the leading scorer you were the second leading scorer Daryl Mitchell Gary Cookie Holmes, Tommy Davis was a yeah. junior on that team. Zeb Howell was one of my favorites. Uh, what was, and Jim Peterson, oddly yeah. enough, we talked about that. What was that crew like, you know, that that, that, that one shutting moment, they, the, the, the fans go running onto the floor, you guys won the championship. Is that a, is that a good a sports moment you had at That's that point in your life? That's a sports
1: moment because when you talked about the number recruiting class in nineteen seventy coming in and, many people were thinking that we might win multiple Big Ten championships. And we thought that we would too. But we realized that it wasn't that easy because the Big Ten had so many quality players and quality teams. And it took us four years to get to that point. And I can remember as we got into the last four games of the season, we were two games out of first place. And, we heard the noise from Bobby Knight and from Ludos Olsen at Iowa. Oh, I forgot that, about that. <clears throat> was that Minnesota players were not? They were not smart enough. Smart enough, to or the, tough they, enough? No, or, not not. We weren't. We weren't smart enough. Plenty tough, huh? We were tough enough. We were talented <laughs> enough, but we weren't smart enough, really, to win the Big Ten championship. So, four games to go with two games out. We have to go to Michigan on a Thursday night. And we hadn't won in Michigan in probably 20 years. Right. But Michigan was a young team, and we knew that we could beat Michigan. So we blow out Michigan by 15 or 20, and now we got to go to Iowa City on a Saturday afternoon. Illinois does us a favor. They beat the Hawkeyes in Champaign on that Thursday night. So now we're one game out, and we're going to play against the Hawkeyes in Iowa City. It's the last game in Hawkeye Arena. The
0: last yeah, game. Yeah, Carver-Hawkeye, yeah, yeah. They, they,
1: they closed, they, it's the, it was the
0: field house. Field house. Now it's Carver-Hawkeye. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They the field
1: house. So they were, closing, they were closing the field house after that no game. No way. And no one really gave us a chance to, to win that game because they figured Iba would, would take care of us on the road. There was not one Gopher fan in the field house that day. Really? Not or it one. didn't feel like it not anyway? Not one. Not one. <laughs> and... That was the only place at that time that team wanted to be. We didn't yeah. want to play the Hawkeyes in Wims Arena. We didn't want to play them in a neutral site. We wanted to beat them. In, in, the, their, yeah, own in their own barn. On, the, on the own barn. And it took us three overtimes to get it done. And Daryl Mitchell made two critical free throws coming down. I the remember.
0: Stretcher. I listened to that game on the radio. I don't think it was televised.
1: It was. It was televised. It was one of those Saturday afternoon uh, rare games that was televised? Was it on
0: TV? Maybe I watched it then. And Bob
1: Costas was doing the game. Oh, really? Like NBC? And that's when that's where he and I became good friends. At really? And uh, we won in triple overtime. And you're talking about to hear 19,000 people go silent. It was it was the best it it was the best noise I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, but it
0: wasn't your work wasn't done yet though. So man. then we had to
1: come home and to win two more games. The Michigan State game that Thursday night was the hardest game that we had to win because we were nervous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we didn't want to mess this thing up. And we were playing cautious. You know, we weren't penetrating. We weren't taking shots. I can remember, you know, Jim Dutch yelling at us. And, you know, Dutch never yelled. No, And he was using some some colorful language really? at, at me and Daryl Mitchell that night. <laughs> 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 and But Gary Holmes makes... You know, two big free throws to, get, to give us a three-point win. And then here comes Ohio State, you know, with the great Clark, Clark Kellogg. And, yeah. And we knew that day that Ohio State didn't have a chance. No. There was, there was no way that Ohio State was going to beat us on that Saturday afternoon. Yeah. And to be two games out and to go on a four-game winning streak and then have to win that major game in Iowa City, that was a testament to how much we had grown as a basketball team. Yeah, Over the 40th,
0: or, or the 4 or the But you, you mentioned Lute Olson. There were so many good coaches: Judd Heathcote, Bobby Knight. Uh, uh, what's the guy's? I'm totally drawn on the Purdue guy. I mean, Gene Cady. Gene Cady. I mean, there were so many great coaches in the league when you were playing at the time. Just legends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you, right. I mean, he had Johnny Orr at Michigan. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, okay, let's just go through uh, the draft. So you you you, you graduate. Um, you go 6th overall in the NBA draft. What was the what was media like then? So if you your boys were listening to the show right now, we know what it would have looked like today what a NBA draft would look like. What was the what was the media like then?
1: It was totally different.
0: Was it even it wasn't even
1: televised. It was televised but not like it is today. It was not a big 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 production like it is now.
0: Were you there when you got to I drafted? went to New York City. Really? Okay, cool. And it
1: was um it was a it was the greatest day, you know, of my young life. Really? Because as a kid, you you have these dreams and you're hoping one day, you know, that you may have a chance to play high school basketball at a high level. And then would well, I be lucky enough to get a scholarship and go to college? And to make the pros, that's as,
0: you know. Icing on the cake. As icing on the
1: cake. And it's, what, 1%? or half of a 1% that's going to have a chance to, to play at the ultimate level. And then for you to be a top 10 pick in that class. And what propelled me to get into that position, I was considered the best shooter in the country. I was considered the best shooter in the draft. And the New York Knicks was looking for an outside shooter. So everything kind of fell in place for me. Yeah. It's all about timing and being in the right place you know, at the right moment. And in 1982, that moment came true for me.
0: So who was number one overall that year? Uh, James Worthy. Okay. Yeah, from Carolina. James Worthy,
1: Terry Cummins. Yep. Dominique Wilkins. Was Terry Cummins from DePaul? Yep. Okay. You had Dominique Wilkins. Yep. You had Bill Garnett from Wyoming. I don't know that name. Yeah. He was a 6'9", power forward from Wyoming. Uh, LaSalle Thompson out of Texas went 5'. Yeah. So and when I was talking with my agent, you know, the day before the draft, he says you're going to go either four or six.
0: Really? I said okay. Did you talk to these teams at all? Did you have like you had no pro day? We had no combine, no nothing, nothing. that nature, no. you didn't go visit the teams beforehand. They just you didn't take one of those. They came and watched. Underlook tests you know? or anything like that.
1: They sent scouts out. They were doing the eye test. He said, you're going to go between four and six. I said, okay. I said, so what's going to determine whether I go four or I go six? He says, if if Dallas takes Bill Garnett at four, you're going to the Knicks at six. I said, okay. He said, because Dallas at that time had Rolando Blackman. Yep, They didn't need his two guard out of Kansas State. And Dallas was looking for an upfront guy, and Bill Garnett was – was the guy that fit, you know, that fit the bill for them. So when his name was called at four, my agent was jumping up and down because he was a New York City guy. And yeah. that's where his office was at. So now I was going to New York City and I was going to have all of my financial team and my agent right there right in my there, backyard. Yeah. So I wouldn't have to get on the phone to call somebody in LA or somebody in somewhere else. And it was great for me to have him there is because... You know, he could help me navigate you know, yeah. all the pressures of playing in New York City because his first client was Walt Clive Frazier.
0: Oh, really? And then
1: his second client was Dr. J. No way. Yeah. So I had great mentors. What's his name? Erwin Weiner. Okay. And I had great mentors on the basketball court, but also I also had a great mentor off the basketball court. Yeah. Was, you know, he was like a second father for me. And oh, that's that, nice. And there's one thing he said to me when I was in my early twenties. He says, for every dollar you spend, you gotta make two. I said, run there by me again. He said, for every dollar you spend, you gotta make two. And that resonated with me. He said, So what I'm trying to do is to get you to think and not about to think about not the money you're making today. How will you allow this money you're making now to be around when you walk away from the game. Right. So my job is to make sure that you're prepared when the game is over. It's not my job to decide whether you can go left or go right. That's their, right. Job. That's, yeah, that's yeah, their yeah. job. Yeah. That's their job. Yeah. He said, my job is to make sure that I put you in the best situation when you walk, walk away from this game that you're, that, that, that you're okay.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's good advice. And he was...
1: He always told me, he said, so any big purchase... You know that you think you want to buy. He says, "Always give yourself twenty-four hours to think about it before you make the decision." So I wanted to buy this house one time, right? In yeah. New Jersey, right? Lawrence Taylor, Phil Sims, all the yeah, guys. Are you living had there. to they live were, there, right? So I want to live with the big boys are living, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got all the big houses, you know. So I'm hanging out with them. So it's time for me to move into that neighborhood as well. I'm a single guy, and you don't even need a house. I don't need a house, but I'm, you know the, the ego is gone. You yeah. know you want you want to be with all the all the big players, and and so he says, "Well, how big is the house?" I said, "No, it's it's good size." He says, "Well, you didn't answer my question." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "It's ten thousand square feet." Oh he's my like, goodness. He's like ten thousand square feet. He says, "What are you going to get married tomorrow? and Have six kids or something?" <laughs> <laughs> Twelve kids, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said. No, he said, okay, let's go take a look at it. So we drive over to New, over to New Jersey, in this part of New Jersey, and we take a look at the house. said, hey, this is a great looking house. We go inside, and he says, okay, let me jot down a few things for you. He says, you never owned a house before. I said, no, he said, there's a mortgage. He says, there's insurance. There's taxes. property taxes. He said, there's lawn upkeep. He says, and you got, to, you got to heat the house. You got to cool the house. He says, and then, you know, you got to furnish the house. Yep, put furniture in the house. He said, call me tomorrow. I said, okay. He says, give yourself 24 hours, and if you feel the same way 24 hours from now that you felt today, okay, then buy it. So we'll we, we take a look at it. I called him the next morning. He said, what are you thinking? So you know what? I don't need that house.
0: <laughs> no, so that's the first best decision you made, right?
1: Well, because by having him you know, at that time, being able to give me that advice, it was it was so helpful. Because as a young person, you know, you're making decisions off of impulse. Right. And your ego is running out of control. And you are you want to be with everybody else. You know, yeah, I live over here, too. Lawrence Taylor is over there. Phil Sims is over there. Bill Parcells yeah. is over here. You know, so, yeah, I supposed to be in that group. But it wasn't the right decision at that time to make. Right. And but for young players who have advisors and if i could talk to any young player at any given time the one advice i would give them is it's your money and you can do whatever you want to do with it but if you have someone who's there to help you make decisions make sure you listen to them first and that was the one thing i learned the most was how to learn how, oh, that's to, learn, how cool. to listen how to listen
0: all right so you got drafted i got to hear your first nba game story well what happened?
1: Opening night, Madison Square Garden, October of 1982. <coughs> my opponent is someone that I grew up idolizing. was Dr. J. No way. So I'm playing against the Philadelphia 76ers. You got Moses Malone, Dr. J, Bobby Jones. One Mar- of the best teams of all time. Maurice right? Cheeks, yeah. Andrew Tony, And I get into the jump ball circle, and I take a look to my
0: right and there's Dr. J. Were your legs wobble. I was shaking. Yeah. I and
1: too. off the opening tap, they win the tap, and the ball is going out of bounds. And I see him take off in the dash sprint, and he reaches out and grabs the ball with one hand before it went out, out of bounds.
0: Yeah. And take one big step and
1: dunks over Bill Kyra, who's seven feet tall. And I was like, I've never seen that basketball before. I I can't play. How how can I play up here? Yeah. And I see a guy who grabs the ball with one hand and then takes one big step and slam dunks over a seven-footer. I said, this is different basketball. different world. Yeah. This is big boys basketball for real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was your first game. My first
0: game. I think I read somewhere in their first season you had – Seventeen points in a quarter and outscored the opposing team in an entire quarter. What, what team was that?
1: I can't remember. I can't recall. But, <laughs> you know, you have those nights when things are going well.
0: Everything's going, and you have three points for shots shot outside the arc, which you did not have in college. Yeah, and How'd we didn't you like shoot, that.
1: We didn't shoot many threes when I first got into the league. It was not a big three-point thing.
0: Yeah, it was more
1: inside outside. But you shot eighteen and nineteen for jump shots. But now having a three-point shot in college. For myself and Daryl Mitchell, it was, it was. Uh, I would say it was a disadvantage for our team, because at that time he and I were the top two scoring tandems at the guard position in the Big Ten, and we took a lot of three-point shots, that would have been three-point shots in yeah. today's game, is because we had such great inside players. We had Randy Brewer, we had Gary Holmes, and then the, the two years we had Kevin McHale. So when you have that strong inside game to go up with the with a good outside game. You going to get those looks from behind the arc. We just didn't have an arc at that time. And yeah, but you believe, got a
0: lot of good looks because of those big boys. Yeah, and
1: I think at that time, if we had a three-point line, you know, Daryl Mitchell and I may have been one and two scoring in the Big Ten.
0: Yeah, yeah, no question. Everybody said, this is not groundbreaking. I've mm-hmm. I've heard that said several, several times. How would an advantage that would have been for you guys to have that stripe? Um, okay, so let's fast forward to the Trent Trucker rule. Uh, when and where did the Trent Tucker rule come into play?
1: January fifteenth, nineteen ninety. <laughs> <laughs> he knows the date.
0: I love it. I it love was, it. Uh, MLK Day. Oh, it was okay. Was it a day game or it was it night game?
1: It was a Madden A Mad-N-A day. Yeah, it was a Madden game. And we're playing the Chicago Bulls. And so it was the first year that they had gone to tenth second on the game clock in the shot. It, it was the first year. Okay, and. All of a sudden, now the game is tied one hundred six, one hundred six, and there's one tenth left on the shot on the game clock and the shot clock.
0: And you had an offensive zone. I don't know what they call it. We and it would call a timeout. Yep. So you got the ball at half court. We got the ball at half court. Got it. Okay. So the play was. This is a really weird rule, by the way. So the so the think yeah. about that. That's a weird rule. Like, so why the, do you get to advance the ball at the half court? Yeah, I, I, I like it. Uh, yeah, it makes it more interesting, more fun, but it makes no sense at all. It puts more pressure on the defense oh, side big time. now to yeah, come yeah. up
1: with a strategy to try to slow you down. So the play was designed for Patrick Ewing. Yep. So we was going to, Patrick Ewing was going to fake up and then go for a loud pass. My job was to go from the left corner to the right corner to empty out the backside. So yep. hoping that Michael Jordan would follow me through the backside on the baseline and then Patrick could fake up and go for a lob. Well, Michael Jordan being a smart player that he was.
0: Went to double Patrick. He
1: took away the lob pass. He just let me go because he knew that we didn't have a lot of time. And I knew Mark Jackson at the time was up against the five second count. So I went along the baseline and up the sideline and he just gave me a little flip pass and I turned and shot the ball as quickly as I could. And Scottie Pippen. When the ball left my hand, his hand touched my hand. And the ball was in the air and I was looking and I said, It's online, but do I have enough? You know, yeah. Did I get enough did I get enough on the shot to get it to the basket? It's it's straight. Yeah. You know, but would I did I did I put enough uh. onto that shot to get it there? And it was getting close I said, That ball has a chance to go in. And when it went in, the garden just exploded.
0: Oh, it did. Okay, people
1: went crazy because the game is over.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, and the and I believe the official when he goes like this, that's a good shot. That's a good shot,
1: right? Well, because they couldn't go back and review it yep. because we didn't have no it, replay. It was, it was a it was a precedent because this is the first time we ever had tens of seconds on the game clock, and there was only point. Point one. One. So yeah. what, whatever the officials decided at that moment. It was in. It was in. That was it. If yeah, they had called it no good, game we were going into overtime. Yeah. When they said basket count, game was over. We ran off the floor as quickly as we could. I could see <laughs> Phil Jackson right now saying there's no way the game, no, 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 this can't happen. We all took off of the locker room, got unchanged, got in the shower because we knew they weren't gonna make us come back out and play the right. game without our uniforms on. So the game was over. The Chicago Bulls protested the game. They took it to the league office. And maybe a week or 10 days later, I had to go meet with David Stern at that time, the commissioner. Seriously? Right. So I go to his office. We sit down. He said, hey, Trent, come on in. How you doing? I said, I'm doing good, Mr. Commissioner. How are you? He says, well, you know, the shot's going to count. It's going to stand. But the shot should not have counted. I said, okay. He said, well, you got this, this puzzling look on your face. He says, so why do you have this look on your face? I said, well, Mr. Commission, with all due respect, I beg to differ. He said, why is that? I said, because the reason you and I are having this conversation this morning is because you saw a man make a shot in the tenth of a second. He says, Trent, get out of my office. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that pretty much sums it up. So they do call, that now it's point three. To, yeah. So if at, it's point one or point two, it has to be a tip in, right? Tip it can't in. be a catch and a shoot. Yeah. So, you know, at that time, you
1: know, CNN had a. Uh, a late night sports show, yeah,
0: ESPN. So
1: Fox, everyone had their stopwatch, and so it's all over the news that night. Nice, yeah,
0: that two big markets they're, too, they're, in New York and Chicago. Yeah,
1: there's no way that you can get a shot off in the tenth of the second. I said it's possible.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And so then when I eventually go to Chicago to play for the Bulls in in the uh, in the early nineteen eighty
0: three,
1: the first day I walk into the building. Phil Jackson says to me, "The shot didn't count."
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love moments like right, that. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, that was my next uh, basketball. We're almost done with basketball here. I wanted to talk. This is your final year in the NBA. You sign with the Bulls, um, and interestingly enough, you hadn't been on the Knicks for a couple of years. But there's a series. I think it was either the it was the conference finals or conference semifinals. Where you beat the Knicks, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just you look at the deal. That's four to two. But if you look at game by game by game, the Knicks were the number one seed in the conference. Yep. Um, yeah, so must have been conference finals, right?
1: Yeah, we beat them in the Eastern Conference Finals.
0: Yeah, so uh, and you were the number two seed that year, and they beat you. They they beat you the first two games. Oh, and
1: they beat us up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then and then you guys come out of nowhere and win four straight, yeah. two on their court. Well, as at
1: the end of the season, game eighty-one. Yeah, we were playing the Charlotte Hornets in Charlotte, and we were tied with the Knicks for the best record in the Eastern Conference. Now they were now we were one game behind with two games to go, so eighty-one and eighty-two. So there's game eighty-one and game eighty-two. Yeah, for so game eighty-one. On a Friday night in Charlotte, we we're playing the Charlotte Hornets.
0: If we Is that win, the L.A. Larry Johnson, Grandma Martin, and Alonzo Mourning, yeah, yeah, they were good.
1: Dale Curry, Muggsy Bogues. If we win that game, we're going to New York for Game eighty-two, with being one game out. If yeah. We, so now, whoever wins that game would have been would have had the best record for the Eastern Conference, would have had home court advantage. Yeah. We got beat by Charlotte on the last second jump shot. Oh, really? So then game 82 didn't Didn't matter. matter. Didn't matter. So we go to the playoffs. We we beat the Hawks in three. So three out of five at that time. Beat the Cavaliers in four. Yeah. So we won our first seven playoff games. And here comes the showdown. The New York Knicks. And we hadn't seen them since game 82. So it's probably been a few weeks or a month or so since we had played against that type of physicality. The first two games, Tony Day knocked us all <laughs> over the court. I mean, they literally beat us up. Did they straight. have Oakley? At Oakley that point? and yeah. Anthony Mason and Patrick Ewing yeah. and Charles Smith and, and Doc Rivers and John Starks and Greg Anthony. They were just a physical team. And Pat Riley was just, you know, he was a different coach. And LA was showtime. Yeah. But now it was all it was all about It was more like football,
0: football. time. Football. It was football. Yeah.
1: Even, even though we we they didn't blow us out but we couldn't run our offense, we couldn't execute. They pushed us off our spots. Right. So we get back to we get back to Chicago. We got a few days off. And I was talking to BJ Armstrong and I said if once we can meet that physicality, we got a better team. Right. And we got the best player. Yep. And game 3, Michael Jordan goes 3 for 16. from the feel? <laughs> And you would have thought at that time, if you look at the box score, not seeing the final outcome you would have of that lost. game, boys, boys got beat by 20. We won by 20. We stepped up and won by 20. And he still scored 22 points there that
0: game. There was a game, I'm not sure it was against the, with the Knicks or the Suns. You'd remember this where he had 55 points. Yeah, so, and. Is that against the Knicks or the, or the Suns?
1: He got the Suns at 55, but. Okay. But so we lose, we win game three. We blow the Knicks out. And we're in the locker room. And you no, know, Phil is about to do his his post game speech, and Michael says, "Phil, can I have the floor for a minute?" Phil said, "Yeah." He says, "He says I owe you guys one." He said, "You guys bail me out today." He said, "I owe you one." He came out the next game. He got fifty five that day. Too.
0: Right. Okay. So that was the fifty five. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He got fifty
1: five that day too. So we win. It's two two, and this is a classic Phil Jackson. It's classic Phil Jackson. And someone asked him, going to game five, he says, what do you think of your chances of going to New York and winning the game? He says, the Knicks can't beat us. And the guy said, why is that? He said, they got the best the best team in the Eastern Conference. He said, the Knicks can't beat us. He said, because they have a history of failure at this time of the season. Wow. So he was page of the New York Post. <laughs> Classic yeah. Phil Jackson, the Zen master. Yeah. I get a phone call the next day from Patrick Ewing. He says, Why is your coach disrespecting us like that? I say, Phil Jackson just got into their hits. Yeah. They're more worried about the back page story than beating you. Than beating the New York Knicks, beating the Chicago Bulls. Yeah. So we felt like that if we were going to win the series, we had to win game five. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because game five is like a game seven to them. It is. It's the first of their game seven because they don't want to go back to Chicago down three games to two. No. It was a free game for us to play. And we won the game. B.J. Armstrong hit a huge three-point shot in the corner to tie the game up, and then he made the last layup to win the game. And once we got back to Chicago for game number six, they had no chance. They had no chance. So we win four straight. So now I, I beat my old team, yeah. the New York Knicks. Patrick Young calls me about four o'clock in the morning, and he says, I'm not rooting for the Chicago Bulls. I'm hoping that you have a good series. I still hope you guys lose, but I hope you play well. And I said, you know, this is a tough day for me as well because you and I have been friends for such a long time. And I said, I was, I was hoping that you would be able to make this trip with me at some point in time. But, but right now, I said, I am putting for the
0: Chicago Bulls. Yeah. And we
1: played the Phoenix Suns, and they had the best record in the entire league. Yeah. Charles Barkley, Dan Marley, Danny Ames, Kevin Johnson, Richard Dumas, they were very, very good. And we win the first two games on the road. Yeah. We go to Chicago. At that time, You're know, the, the middle of three games were on the home floor. It was 2-3-2. Two, two.
0: Still that way. Yeah.
1: And so they're going back to 2-2. Two, two, oh, they did? Yeah. And so what happened was that we lose game three in triple overtime. So now it's two yeah. games to one. Sounds fans are feeling real good about themselves. We win game four. B.J. Armstrong makes another great defensive play on Kevin Johnson to seal the deal and win by two. Now it's championship night. Yeah, so game I, I five, was going to ask about this. So championship night is game five. All the your family town. members. I mean, everybody, everybody's
0: there.
1: All your family members are there. Everybody's you know, there. Everybody's going to line up to get to come on the floor to get their 15 minutes <laughs> of fame. You know, NBC's got the game, so everybody's gonna get to say something. All my brothers' friends oh, are back and in Chicago
0: is gonna get rowdy, too. Right, right. And all
1: my brother's friends back in Flint are gonna get to see them on T V and they can talk yeah. about this when they get back to work at GM on Monday. We lost game five.
0: You laid an egg. You laid an egg. Yeah.
1: And so I take my family out to dinner. You know, they didn't want to talk. No. He said, how could you guys lose? You just messed up my (laughs) moment, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was was about their moment. Not about our moment, but it was their moment. Yeah. So we board the plane, and before we board the plane, uh, Phil Jackson called me into his office. He says, I need to see you before we head to the airport. I said, okay. And I walk in, I said, Coach, what's what's up? He says, well... You know, tomorrow's a big game, right? I said, well, I know you didn't call me here to tell me that, right? <laughs> hey. He said, no. He says, I got to play you a little bit more. He said, I'm going to play you more on Sunday tomorrow than I have in the past. It's okay. He says, but um, I don't know how many shots you're going to get tomorrow. He says, but every shot you get, it has to go in. How much pressure is that? I said, okay. He's said, see you at the And. We win ninety nine ninety eight. This is a John Paxson. Yeah, I go four for four that day. Yeah. So he said, you might get one shot, you might get four, you might get ten. He said, but every shot you get, the ball has to go in. And we win
0: ninety nine, ninety
1: eight. If I go three for four,
0: you don't win. You don't win. Yeah, and I'm sure your looks were pretty open too, like Paxson's was.
1: Or you know, I got the first one is 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 is, is tough because you come into the game off Cold. the bench. And yeah. as soon as I walk on the floor, Michael Jordan penetrates and kicks the ball to me. <laughs> now I got to make the shot. Yeah, and I knock down the first shot, then your confidence is there. He goes oh, yeah. out of the game, run a few plays for me. I get another couple good looks and knock those down. But now you're in the game. But you never you never go into a situation thinking that if I miss one shot today, my team may lose. And I'm not the best player on the team. You never thought of that. No, you
0: don't think about you never that. never thought of it that way, yeah.
1: And so I was doing a, an interview with B.J. Armstrong where they, one day he had K-Fan, you know, uh, Justin Guard, who's yeah. a big Iowa guy, big B.J. fan. And they had called me and asked me, could they talk to B.J.? And I said, yeah, let me reach out to him. And, and B.J. said, well, I'll come on, but I'd like to come on and talk with Trent as well. Right. They he said, great. And he told... Dan Burrell and Justin story says. he says, to win a championship at that moment, he said, with all the great players that we had, we as one got to be perfect. And Trent had to be perfect for us to win that day. That's cool that you remembered that. He said, he says, we asked him to be perfect. We didn't ask him to play well. We asked him to be perfect on that day. Yeah. Not a perfect player, but he had to have a perfect moment. And
0: That's super uh, cool.
1: He says in... And Field looked at him as like, says, hey, you know. It wasn't like, you know, what I'm saying to you, I'm meaning this, that you got to make every shot today for us to win. And at the end of the day, when you go back and and you think about being in that moment, it's all about the preparation and time that you spent.
0: Right. Oh, yeah.
1: Understanding where your shots were going to come from with inside the offense. And at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night or a Friday night, you know, do I go to dinner with friends and hang out at nine o'clock?
0: Or do I go shoot? Or do I go shoot?
1: And go in to shoot on a Friday night at, at eleven o'clock, pay it off on Sunday
0: afternoon. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you get to hold the trophy, you get to have the shining moment. I'm sure your family didn't make it to Phoenix, did they? They didn't make it to Phoenix. No, but right, you
1: nobody know was Father's Day.
0: What's that? Oh, it was Father's Day? Father's
1: Day. So I, so I got so I had to get on the payphone phone to call my father and wish him happy Father's Day.
0: <laughs> oh, that's good, that's good. And then what was the parade like for you? Oh, it was unbelievable. Because that place, that town is so big and so many people. It was
1: unbelievable because you have to be very fortunate. Was that fortunate. Michael's
0: number two? Three. That was his third? Yeah. Okay, all right.
1: You have to be fortunate for one to play in the NBA but you have to have even greater fortunes to be on a team that's good enough to win a championship. Yeah. It's yeah. only 12 guys. Yeah. And so when they put this roster together, what did they see in you?
0: Yeah. Say they that, saw hey, perfect.
1: To say that you can be a championship player. And before the 92-93 season, that was the year they had the dream team.
0: Yes, that summer.
1: Michael was going to quit and retire from basketball. He said, I have enough. I got two championships. I got two Olympic gold, uh, gold medals. It's been a long season. I'm exhausted. What am I playing for? And Phil called him into his office. And he says, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird had never won three. three in games. a row. Oh, he looked at Phil. <laughs> He says, i see you tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock.
0: Yeah. That's all he needed. Yeah, that's all he needed. That was little a, carrot, that, tiny little carrot. That's all he
1: needed. That was the motivation to get him to come back for number three. And Phil was very good at managing, you know, players' minutes and times. Right. He said, We're not going to play this year to have the best overall record. If we get it, great. it's great. He said, but you know, I got to Rest, I got some older guys. I got some guys who got some wear and tear. I got to make sure they're ready for a playoff run. He said, if we finish second or third in the conference, I'm okay with it because I know that we can win some games on the road.
0: Right, right. All right, so the career ends 93 as an NBA champion, pretty good way to walk out, right? Yeah. Um, then the Trent Tucker that I know was putting on golf, tennis uh, outings, and you were bringing in like – Superstars. Michael came at least once, maybe more than once. Came ten times. He came all ten times. Yeah. I just remember people going out there yeah. to see him. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was the cost? Uh, that's really what I want to get to. You you raise all this money in this golf and tennis outings. What, what were you raising money towards? What I, I talk a little bit kids. about it.
1: middle school kids, early college awareness.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Um, planting that seed early on. You know, even though you're in middle school now, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, you think that, you know, college is is so far away, but it's just around the corner. Mm -hmm. Because by the time you get into ninth grade, the clock begins to tick. Right. And I wanted to put them on the right track from a mental standpoint, thinking about the education. You know, there was always programs from K through five and nine through 12. But nothing middle school. Nothing middle school. It's a tough age group to deal with. Yeah, They are old enough to do some things by themselves, but they're still too young to do everything by themselves. And, and those get
0: to places too.
1: And they can easily be influenced during that time to go the wrong way. And right. we just wanted to provide an opportunity and create resources, you know, to give them a reason to not only to think and believe, but to see that life could be different.
0: Give me some hands-on, give me some examples maybe if that came out of all those outings and all that stuff that maybe help kids move forward.
1: There's two young ladies right now who are still a part of my family that started with us when they were in the sixth grade, and they grew up in North Minneapolis. And one name is Jessica Brown, and their sister's name is Jasmine. And when I first met them and I looked at you know, the situation that they were in, you would think that it's going to be very difficult for them to, to, to take the next step. Right. And then when they, finish, when they finish elementary school, they say, hey, we want to go to De La Salle. Oh, okay. And I like, wow. And I looked at their background. They qualify for De La Salle. They went to De La Salle. They graduated from De La Salle with honors. Jessica did and her sister also did very well. And then I think the proudest moment, was that when I went up to Duluth at St. Scholastica. Yes, that's where Scholastica, they went. College. Jessica walked across the stage with a college degree.
0: That's pretty cool. So they came through your program, went all the way through. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. I love hearing. And I, mean, I figured you had some some stories.
1: And it was so many kids who had a couple of kids going to go into St. Thomas and graduate. And But it was just, it was so nice to be a part of those families. Right you know, to to lend a sense of hope and to help kids understand that there are people out here that want to help you. Yeah. There are a number of people out here that want to help you. But you have to be willing to meet them halfway. Yeah. If you're willing to put the effort and the energy and the time to change the outlook of your situation, there are a number of people who are willing to meet you halfway. That's cool. And to get them to see that and to think that and to believe that, it takes a team of people working together on a daily basis to continue to instill that thought process into their heads.
0: Tell me about uh, your broadcasting for the Timberwolves. Was it, how many years did you do it? I did it five years. Five years. So was that in the KG era?
1: I was, my first year was Kevin Garnett's
0: first year. So it was like 90- 96, 96 five, yeah, 95. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So he and I broke in together. Those are some glory years for that team.
1: You know, working with Kevin Harlan was the best.
0: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, does it?
1: And did
0: you realize how great he was? I knew how
1: good he was because I used to listen to him. Yeah. Before I joined, before I joined the broadcasting team. But when you're around him on a nightly basis, then you realize how good he is. So when we first started together, you know, you go into the situation. I know basketball. But I don't know broadcasting, so you're nervous. Yeah. All of a sudden, that little that little light comes on, and you gotta take a look at that little light. Yeah. And you're knowing that whatever you say is going to go out to hundreds of thousands of people. It's nerve wracking. And yeah. you got a short period of time, you know, to get your thoughts out. So after our first game together, and I went to him, the second game, I said, "I know you're used to working with guys who've been around." the broadcasting booth for a long time. I say, but this is what I need from you. I need for you to help me to become a better broadcaster so that we can become a better team. And he looked at me and he says, okay. I said, I know basketball, but I need for you to be my point guard to set me up. Right. And that yep. relationship from there just flourished. Yeah. Because it, It wasn't like I was coming in and looking at him as if he didn't know anything about basketball. I was saying, I need to learn what it takes to be a broadcaster. And Kevin Harlan taught me how to be a broadcaster.
0: And I've done both play-by-play and color. And your goal as the color guy is you, it's a lot of pressure because there's a stoppage, now I'm on you are never going to when the ball is in play you're rarely going to step on yeah, Kevin's call right i mean yeah. you're waiting for that yeah. at least a, a slight stoppage or a full stoppage yeah. Yeah. people don't realize it's i go it's way harder being color than it is being play by because play by you're just on you're you're buzzing the whole time you, the color guy you have to wait and wait for for his prompts wait for the the in, in hockey it's the goal call right like you don't want to step on the goal call of the of the guy yeah. You want it? There's there's certain cadences that go with it, and it and you can't build that that skill just like you can't build a skill of shooting a puck or a basketball. In, and it in took a day. us time.
1: And, and yeah. It took time. And, but he was so good, and he says, "Okay, when I want you to come in, I just tap the table." Yeah. So I just tap the table, and I said, "Well, the camera's not on, so I can I can see you tapping the table." Yeah. And it's time for me to come in. He says, "And if you're in the middle of a call." And you explaining something, and we come back to live action. He said, "Don't stop, just keep going."
0: Right. What's your thought. He says, "I can, I can get back in."
1: And all those little the tips coming from a pro.
0: Helped. Yeah. And yes. he was. i when I when I got a color guy with me in a game. I'm the elbow guy. Like, all right, here we go. I'm finishing off the goal call, and then it's boom, hit him with the elbow, and then they know it's he, it's. He would, be ta- ready. He, would, he would
1: do this. Yeah. And I was okay. <laughs> And but we had so much we had so much fun together. But the beauty of our relationship, every everyone thought that he and I hung out every day together. We only saw each other on game day. Yeah. yeah that was it. Because he oh, yeah. would in between games he would go he would fly back to Kansas City. Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah. would come in, he was like, like, what do you want to talk about? I said, I'll just follow your lead. Wherever you go, I just follow your
0: lead. Yeah, it's not hard. That um, guy's was, so good. He is. He's so good. All time best. We're lucky to have Kevin Harlan. We need more of those. Uh, okay, so we've talked a little bit about all all of your life. We haven't talked hockey, and this is a hockey broadcast. Um, I want to know a little bit about how your kids got into hockey.
1: Well, it's a, fa- it's a family thing on my wife's side. Of the, really? Of the equation because, you know, my brother-in-law – Taught hockey when- What's his name? Dave Aspinwall. He taught hockey for his for his kid, uh, Drew Aspinwall, who went on to play college hockey at Gustavus. Okay. So when my kids were born, they were always watching hockey. And so when they could sit up, they had a hockey stick in their hand. And I spent a multiple weekends when they were like three and four driving them to Saint, down to St. Pete. To, to watch. To watch them play hockey. Oh so they got Snowy hooked Knights, early. Snowy nights on 169, going down <laughs> Yeah. Uh, down to St. Peter's to watch them play hockey. And you know, they were five and six. They would go down and give all the players knuckles and everything. And and they and this hockey just became their came their thing. No basketball, but hockey, 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 hockey.
0: Okay. No basketball. No they basketball. never. They were never handed a basketball. I they them, they didn't have like, a mini hoop. They play.
1: They play a, a little bit here and there, but then it was like, Nah, no. Hockey became their thing.
0: What were you thinking when well, that was when they were? I loved it. Really? Yeah. Did it take the pressure off as a as an athletic parent, a parent it, of an athlete? Sure. Because sure now I, it was a game
1: that I could learn. So it was something totally different. It was something that they were they were engaged with. They wanted to learn how to skate and they wanted to figure out how to get better as a hockey player. And the first time I took them to Minnesota Maid, yeah. I thought my kids could skate a little bit. And the first time they got to Minnesota Maid, I said, You guys can't skate at all. <laughs> <laughs> and because there were so many different things they hadn't learned, inside edges, outside edges, this and that. So I'm learning all these Terms at, yeah. as well. And I see them falling down. And all the kids are just going smoothly and skating. And my kids are having the hardest time standing on their feet. I'm thinking, you know what? Ah, this is not going to be for them. And I can remember William Jesse saying to me one day, he says, I said, are you okay with this? He says, yeah. He says, Dad, at some point in time, I won't fall. He said, I will be able to stand up and do these drills on these skates. And I was like, okay. I say, as long as you wanna do this, knowing that you're gonna have some ups and downs and it's gonna take some time for you to get to where you need to get to, I'm with you. And but they just love the game, they they wanna get better at the game, they study the game, they they're understanding what the game is all about. And for me it's it's great to just to see how motivated they are to try to become better hockey players. Uh
0: I've I have rarely do I see two kids like your boys just riveted to the game when they're in the building. And and I mean, they're watching anything. They'll watch anything hockey. I can only imagine what it's like at home.
1: Oh, they just, on their phones, what are you watching? I'm watching a (laughs) 2017 hockey, something like that. And for me, it's, it's great because you know, I can't want it more than no,
0: they correct. Can. Well, they want it more than you do, that's right. for and so, sure. And
1: that's, and that's the beauty of it is because if I got to be somewhere at 7 o'clock for them to go to a practice, I don't have to struggle to get them out of, out, out of bed. No. They're up, they up knocking on my door. There
0: we got to go. I'm sure that's the case. And for me,
1: it makes it, it makes it easier because now I know they're motivated to go. I'm not forcing them to go. I'm not putting, putting them in a situation where they don't want to be in. And I'm learning about hockey as well. But also I get to meet people like yourself and I get to meet so many other different parents and other coaches and other guys around the game. And I've had the good fortune of getting to know some of the professional hockey players like Kevin Weeks who does stuff on ESPN. Yeah. You know, yeah, he's a good friend of mine and we'll talk about hockey and basketball and stuff. How'd you get to meet I mean, Kevin? Kevin was is, is a big basketball fan. Oh, he
0: is okay, just like I am apparently. Yeah,
1: and so there's a, a person who I do some PR work up up in New York, and she was talking about me one day, and he says, "You're talking about that Trent talking." And she said, "Yeah." He says, "I'm a big fan of basketball." She says, "Let's call him on the phone," and we just that's pretty cool. a relationship from there, and I got I had a few moments with you know Mark Messier. I've met. Talked with Wayne Greske a little bit, um, but the best conversation I had was with Mario Lemieux. Really, when Michael Jordan got married, and I was going down for the wedding, and Lemieux was there, and I asked him, I said, "I got two boys who are interested in the hockey," and he said, "How old are they?" I said, they maybe they were two or three at the time." He says, "Put them on skates right now." Yeah, that was and. And I sat and chatted with Lemieux and Ford, and I was like, wow. I mean, to me, I was like in awe because I got Wayne Gretzky, Marino Lemieux, Marc Messier, and, and like you said, I'm a sports fan. Yeah, And, and to be in the presence of, of greatness of that nature. You know, that was pretty big time. Think
0: about all the Stanley Cups and just those three names you ripped mm-hmm. off there. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as they walk, as your sons walk through this game, um, do you find yourself, the more knowledge you get, the more excited you get about going to the rink?
1: Yeah, because I see a lot of similarities to basketball.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not as, it's uh, but hockey's faster.
1: I, but the similarities, you know, you have... Uh, I look at the center as a point guard. Center,
0: yep. But I look at the D man as the point guard. The wingers it's distributing.
1: Your your wingers are your your, your guys who fill the lane. So I look at when the D gets to puck out of the
0: zone and they move. It to yeah, the your third. center is a point guard in some in a lot of ways too. So yeah, I look correct. at
1: the defensive guys when they move it to the side. I'm just kind of looking at from a basketball standpoint. If the center gets the rebound, he hits it. He hits he hits the guard on the on the side,
0: where the guard feeds the
1: ball to the middle. But yeah. well, if you move the plug to the middle, I say, well, okay, that's center now and the guys fill the lanes. Well, your two forwards are filling fill the way. lanes. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And so
1: now you go down on this, hopefully you can get a, a three-on-two or something here or there. So I I see a lot of similarities to to basketball, but it's just fun for me, you know, as a guy who knew nothing about hockey, didn't grow up with hockey, to understand how the game is played at at at, at the highest level. And look at The kids who are playing around the state now. I mean, they are some really, really good hockey players. Yeah. Yes, they're big, they're strong, they're well coached. And for my kids just to be a part of that, you know, that's that's fun for us as a
0: family. Have you ever had like crazy thoughts by being in a hockey rink like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if basketball had a shorthanded situation? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> we're five against four.
0: <laughs> 30 seconds. We're like, we got 30 seconds where he's got to sit out for doing whatever.
1: You know, I never thought about that, but it like, would, would be kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, I, whatever. I'm just saying like crazy thoughts like because the games are very similar.
1: Very similar. It's fast. You got to think on your feet,
0: you know, and and
1: now when when you get to the Bantams level, yeah. it changes.
0: Oh, yeah. because now now it's
1: Because it, it becomes more physical. And now you have to adjust to the speed and the size and knowing that you're going to get hit so your decisions have to become quicker. You still have time, but you have to grow now from a mental standpoint. And And it's interesting to see, for me, how kids are coming out of peewees, going into banners for the first time, are they going to make those adjustments?
0: Oh yeah, it's a big puberty game. Mm-hmm. It's a big puberty game. The you kids got can... one
1: kid that weighs one hundred and sixty, and kid weighs ninety. <laughs> it's scary. It is yeah. scary.
0: Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, color of skin and involvement in the game. Uh, African American. I, I uh, Anthony Walsh is a good friend of mine. He's making a big push these days for kids of color to play the game. Um, you were also an athletic director in in the city for five years. So you know this struggle that it is to get kids of color into the game. Before we get to that question, I want to talk about, uh, from your perspective, um, how welcoming is is the game of hockey to people of color?
1: Well, I can only speak on my experience.
0: And others. I mean, I'm sure you've talked to others as well. It's been
1: very welcoming to us. Now, we've had a few incidents here and there early on, but overall – It just, my kids just roll with the punches. And the beauty of sports for me, from a team standpoint, you may come from a different part of the state, country, or world. Yeah. But when you are part of a team, you are forced to talk to the other individual who sits beside you. And if we could, and if we could somehow, some way, Bring that that mentality into our world, into the world, into the world. It would be a much better place. Because as a college basketball player, it doesn't matter whether my teammate is from the smallest town in Alabama and he's never ever encountered with a black person before.
0: Within, but when he's a part of that two team, two weeks they're friends. But when he's a part of that team, all gets broken down.
1: All is broken down because the only I thing agree. I care about now is him as a person and him as a teammate.
0: And I agree.
1: When, if he makes that shot and it goes in, everybody is happy. And I go and if back. if he doesn't
0: make that shot, you become his friend and say, "Hey, you're good at next time, right?" And
1: I, I talked to some of my nephews about some things here and then. And I was having a conversation with one of my nephews the other day, and he was reminiscing about something I said when I was playing for the Knicks, MLK Day. I make a shot with a tenth of a second. Yeah. New York City is a melting pot of people from all over the world. But at that moment, 20,000 people. All brought together. They were Knicks fans. They didn't care what you looked like, where you came from, how you dressed, what your thought process was. At that moment, everybody was hugging each other. And to me, that's the beauty of sports. So, you know, my kids, you know, being in this hockey world that they're in today, they got friends from all over the state and all around the country. And, you know, the Xbox brings them together. Isn't that crazy? And so what I'm saying, who are you talking to? Well, I'm talking to a kid that played over this here. I'm talking to a kid that played in North Dakota. I'm talking, we're friends with this kid over here and there. You know, we all know that there are gonna be situations sometimes that are unpleasant. Yeah. You know, you know, but but the beauty of a sports when you come together as a team you can overcome some of those things. All
0: right, so I asked how if it was welcoming. Is is there times where it hasn't been welcoming? And if there have, uh, how could hockey do better at being more welcoming? I think I want to make this a little bit educational. Too. I think like, it's all
1: about communication. Yeah, The more we talk to each other, the better we get to understand. We break down those barriers. We break down the perceptions because everyone is going to have an opinion about something here or there. There's always going to be a messenger that's going to give somebody a message. And if you only listen to one message, you're going to Correct. miss the beauty of people. Yeah. But when you sit down and have that conversation with that person, you can find out you know what? You and I do have a lot in, a com- lot in common. A lot of
0: common ground. Common. Common common. Yeah. So that's the,
1: to me, that's the beauty of sports. And it's a life lesson. It teaches you how to be unselfish. It teaches us how to accept others from all different walks of life. It teaches us how to deal with adversity and difficulty and how to overcome certain things. It gives you a sense of, mental toughness that you may not get from any other thing else. And when you're out there in live action, all of your emotions are on display. You know, Either you're going to get it done or you're not going to get it done. And if you don't get it done today, what are you going to do tomorrow to get to better, better yourself so to make sure that you can find yourself in a better place down the road?
0: So as a because it's it's just a sport, right? Hockey's just like lacrosse or soccer or baseball. Uh as a sports dad um and you didn't this is the, the 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 this is the million dollar question, right? Um as a sports dad and now you're playing a different sport, but you've seen sports, lots of sports mm-hmm. in your life. Uh do your kids ever like look at you like but you, dad, you didn't play the game of hockey so you wouldn't understand. Have you gotten that from them? I'm, I got to think it was coming.
1: No. No. It's because I don't talk to them about the technical part of hockey. Right. I talk to them about the mental side of sports. And so when I sit down with my oldest son, William Jesse, who likes to watch film, yep, and I say, okay, I'm going to put this in basketball terms if the puck is in the, in the left corner and deep in, in your zone, I say, as a defenseman, where should you be? I say, if you're hanging out on the wall, that puck squirts out to the middle, you're not going to catch that guy, right? Right. Yeah. Okay, I say, so if you're in the middle, puck's down in the left corner, I say, if one of your fours or center gets the puck, I say, now they have a passing angle to get to you where you can get a shot. I say, but they can't make a... 85-foot pass across the ice because it's going to get stolen. So I talk to them more about, you know, the the mental part, the positioning, where you're supposed to go, because I can equate that to basketball. Sure. But I'm not talking to them about you got to work on your edges, you got to work on this, you got to do this, you got to do that. That's up to the guys that you go see on a daily basis. I, I don't do anything with that. But when you're having a difficult time, when you're not playing well or you're not getting the type of minutes that you think you should get or ice time, you know, how do we go through that? How do we get through that? So, I'm, um, I'm happy that I'm able, you know, to lend, you know, that that type of advice to them, to help them grow as people.
0: And as All right. Theirs. So here's another observation that I make about you. I'm not sure if I said this in the show or before the show, but uh, your kids watch a lot of hockey. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are literally, you know, faces on the glass type of kids. All the time, and it's not their game. It's not their team. It might not even be their association. They're just watching a friend of their that, that they've made over the years playing hockey. At what point do you go? All right, uh, I don't like this as much as you do, but I'm gonna support you by letting you sit here and watch one more game. But I think they've gotten you to like two more games type of environment. What what point do you like? Hey, I got. I want to go home and I want to watch something else besides this Pee Wee hockey game.
1: I just let them do what they want to do. I just <laughs> it's crazy how I, much they're at the rink. I let I, you know, if they want to go, if they are enthusiastic about going, I take them. Because I, I know that at some point in time, you know, they're gonna be driving on their own and they're gonna be out of the house. So all the moments I get a chance to spend with them, I cherish those times.
0: Yeah, because there's a lot of dads, myself included, who'd be like, "All right, we've watched three games after your game," and they're the type of kids that I think they would be there till ten o'clock every night watching. You know, every games. once
1: in a while, we might say, "Okay, that's enough."
0: You're right, but, more but times, not very often. But
1: more times now, we we allow them to to do what they like to. Do. I mean, it's it's constructive for them. They like the game. They want to be around the game, and also I get to learn of something else here or there as well. But to see them grow mentally. Um, as hockey players, is a good thing. So,
0: All right. So, well, that pretty much wraps it up. Um, I learned a lot about you today. I, hopefully a lot of people learn a lot about you as well. Uh, I had a blast getting to know you. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Trent Tucker.
1: you can't take the heat Cause it get cold like Minnesota Cold like Minnesota Cold like Minnesota Cold like Minnesota Minnesota. Need to stay up out in the streets If you can't take the heat